0: Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green and today we'll be discussing Paul Draper's case for naturalism. In 1997, Paul Draper and William Lane Craig debated the existence of God. Draper begins by reminding us that certainty is not attainable when it comes to metaphysical questions about God's existence one way or the other. So we should examine the world to the best of our ability and ask, Is what we see more surprising on the assumption that Christian theism is true, or that naturalism is true? He goes on to argue that the world looks about how one would expect if God didn't exist. Draper's case is inductive. He thinks there are no good deductive arguments for or against the existence of God. But he does believe that certain facts are more probable on the hypothesis of naturalism. The character of our universe is roughly what one would expect if naturalism were true. We witness all sorts of events we should be surprised to find in a Christian world and he freely admits that there are some facts that are more probable on theism, but they are outweighed by the evidence in favor of naturalism. Of course, Christians can explain why the world appears as it does. That's not the point. Atheists and theists can both explain the data. There's nothing one can point to and say, we need a god to explain that. Likewise, there's no suffering so appalling that a Christian couldn't conjure up an explanation why an all-good, all-powerful god would continue to behave in a way indistinguishable from non-existence. Same goes for divine hiddenness, biblical confusion, and so on. Again, Christians and atheists are both capable of accounting for what we observe. So what should we do? According to Draper, we should ask, is this fact likely given naturalism, or is it surprising given naturalism? Is that datum to be expected on theism, or is it not exactly what we would expect? then we should survey the total evidence and see which worldview fares better overall. So what is naturalism, as Draper understands it? Naturalism is, quote, the hypothesis that the natural world is a closed system, which means that nothing that is not a part of the natural world affects it. So naturalism implies that there are no supernatural entities including God. That means metaphysical naturalism entails atheism, but it's a bit broader than atheism. So Draper makes use of an illustration with two jars of jelly beans. One is filled with mostly red beans and a small amount of blue beans. The other is filled with mostly blue beans and a small amount of red beans. And both jars also contain a few yellow beans. Someone takes a bean from a jar. We don't know which. It's a red bean. So which jar do we think it came from? The evidence in this case is compatible with the bean coming from either jar, but it's surprising if it came out of the second jar, and not so surprising on the assumption that it came out of the first. Certainty is not on the table. The evidence in this case doesn't conclusively prove that it came from the atheist jar and not the theist jar, but it is evidence favoring one hypothesis over the other. So let's say we keep taking jelly beans from one of those two jars. We know they're all coming from the same jar, we just don't know which. We draw another red bean, and another, and another, and another, until we have several red beans before us, only a couple blue beans, and one or two yellow beans. So, at this point, we have a strong cumulative case that we've been drawing beans from the atheist jar. The evidence doesn't prove once and for all which jar we've been drawing from, but the competing position is looking less and less reasonable. Given the evidence, we should conclude that we've been drawing from the first jar. We could still be wrong, of course. But that would be very improbable, since we've drawn so many red beans and so few blue beans.
1: If we let the, the first jar represent naturalism and the second jar represent theism, then I'm going to present you now with seven red beans. Okay? Seven facts that are more likely to obtain if naturalism is true than if theism is true. Together, these facts provide a strong cumulative case against theism.
0: The meager moral fruits of theism A true religion would surely improve the moral lives of its adherents in a way that a false religion could not. I don't see why this should be a controversial point to make. We shouldn't expect false religions to make people better to the same degree that a true religion would. If Christianity is the one true religion, its members should be relatively morally superior to those in other religions, as well as non-believers. All parties involved—atheists, agnostics, Christians, those in other religions—are roughly equally virtuous. In Draper's experience, and in mine, there is no clear difference between Christians and atheists such that one group is obviously morally superior to the other, all things considered. If Christians are worse than non-believers, that only strengthens the case. However, it's not necessary to defend that stronger claim for the argument to work. Draper's not claiming that Christians are morally inferior to atheists. There's lots of evil inside Christendom as well as outside. He's pointing out that, in his experience, all parties involved are roughly equally virtuous. The ethical conduct of Christians is not significantly better than that of non-believers. As William Lane Craig admits, quote, It would seem arrogant and ignorant to claim that those who do not share a belief in God do not often live good moral lives, lives that sometimes put our own to shame. Why is church history so appalling, right up into the present? Why are there evils, great and small, committed by believers with such frequency? I know we're all fallen and we're all sinners, according to Christianity, but for one, the claim is not that Christians should be perfect, and second, how many times have you heard Christians claim that Jesus is a significant well of moral strength, that they've been transformed by God, that they were profoundly changed after their conversion? I'm not doubting their sincerity, but if their relationship with God or their religious commitments bore significant moral fruits, it would not be true that the ethical conduct of Christians and non-believers is roughly the same. And yet, this seems to be the case. Again, a true religion should produce notably different effects from false religions, let alone non-belief. Atheists are not morally inferior to Christians, and Buddhists are not morally inferior to Baptists. But if I'm right about that, there are no significant moral fruits borne by Christian belief. So the Christian has a bit of a dilemma here. They must either claim that atheists are morally inferior to believers, which seems flatly untrue, or they have to give up their claim that converting to Christianity is a transformative event that bears appreciable moral fruit, which we would expect on the truth of Christianity. Again, it's not that Christians couldn't marshal some response to this. The point is that if Christians were noticeably better, if we really could know they were Christians by their love, it would be expected assuming the truth of Christianity. If Christians were notably better than non-believers, and those in other religions, that would be evidence favoring Christianity. But we don't see that. I certainly don't see that. On naturalism, one wouldn't expect theistic belief to bear significant moral fruits. And indeed, the moral fruits of theism are meager at best. If you want to dispute this argument, you're going to have to argue that true religions and false religions would bear roughly the same consequences, which seems absurd. And if you want to deny that the moral fruits of theism are meager at best, you'll have to argue that atheists are morally inferior. Good luck with that. So are atheists morally inferior to believers or not? If that's what you think, then just say that. Take responsibility for your stupid shitty opinions And just say, I think atheists are morally inferior, then we can have a conversation about that. I've been politely defending the claim that atheists and theists are roughly equally moral. That's all I need for the argument to work. But I will say that the claim that atheists are morally superior to Christians is at least as defensible as the opposite claim that I've seen many Christians shamefully defend. Theism, mental phenomena, and physical phenomena are radically independent. The mental could exist independently from the physical. But all our observations tell us a different story. Every aspect of human consciousness is dependent on the brain. Quote, My second red bean is the fact that conscious states of all sorts, even the very integrity of our personalities, are dependent to a very high degree on physical processes occurring in the brain. Although I do not believe that contemporary neuroscience has proven that brain states and mental states are identical, it has discovered overwhelming evidence for an invariable correlation between the two. In other words, nothing mental happens without something physical happening. This extends even to our deepest sense of self and the most entrenched parts of our character and personality. For example, in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease, a patient who had previously been a kind, gentle person may become violent and aggressive. Most Christians are substance dualists. Your soul, not your brain, is the seat of all mental activity. Your personality, character, and even your ability to reason is thanks to the soul. If theism is true, that means that the physical world, if it exists, was created by a mind. So there's at least one non-physical mind. God's mind. Why wouldn't our minds exist in the same way? God could have chosen to create minds without the need for any physical body, such as angels. And most Christians believe that their soul will leave their physical body at death and arrive in heaven with their minds and personalities intact. In other words, most Christians believe that the mental and the physical are radically independent. We don't need to subscribe to some mind-brain identity theory to recognize the fact that brain states and mental states are highly correlated. Changes in the brain change core aspects of your personality. Your character changes in tandem with changes in the brain your experiences change along with the arrangement of particles in the brain. This mind-brain correlation is very tight and well-established. There really is nothing about you that we can't change by changing your brain, including your ability to reason, your moral judgments, and your character, things ordinarily taken to reside in the soul. When a neuroscientist uses TMS, or a combination of drugs, or some other way of altering brain activity, they're not changing your soul. They're changing your brain. Why should your reasoning capacities change, if reason is a function of the soul? Souls are an unnecessary metaphysical expense. We'd be multiplying entities unnecessarily, and could be creating a whole host of other problems in the process, like the interaction problem, systematic overdetermination, violation of causal closure, ignoring the success of the core theory, and inadvertently making further predictions about the world that are not borne out by reality. For example, if substance dualism is true, we should expect some parapsychological phenomena to be real. We should expect good evidence for genuine out-of-body experiences, maybe even ghosts and telekinesis, as well as other parapsychological and paranormal phenomena. But parapsychological and paranormal phenomena are not well established. If they were, that would be good evidence for dualism. My main issue with dualism remains its flagrant violation of Occam's razor. We don't need two substances to explain the data, so this multiplication of entities is totally unnecessary. Why not postulate three substances, or ten, or a million? We don't need ten to explain the data, but we also don't need two. One will do just fine. Since I know some interactionist dualists will think this doesn't apply to them, yes, dualism can allow for correlations between mental states and physical states. And the existence of such correlations alone doesn't constitute strong evidence against dualism. I have given additional reasons to doubt the view, namely an appeal to simplicity and to the fact that we have heaps of data that are surprising on the view that mind and matter are radically independent. If mind and matter were independent, there are things we'd expect to see and things we wouldn't expect to see. Virtually everything we know is not what one would predict as a dualist. So we have a few good reasons to doubt the view. The bottom line for our purposes is that theism presupposes a radical metaphysical dualism. So the evidence against dualism is evidence against theism. Dualism and naturalism could both be true, but dualism isn't built into naturalism like it seems to be built into theism. On theism, mental phenomena and physical phenomena are radically independent. God, and probably angels, as well as humans, have minds that could exist wholly apart from the physical. Even on interactionism, they could exist wholly apart from each other. But we don't observe independence. We observe intricate and systematic correlations between the mental and the physical. It does not appear to be the case that the mental can exist without the physical. This probably needs to be restated. I'm sure Christians have all kinds of responses to this. Theists can even decide to be physicalists when it comes to all minds except God's mind. Why not? but if physicalism is true, we can hopefully agree that it makes a better fit with naturalism than theism. On Christian theism, it'd be pretty surprising. Not impossible, but not expected. On theism, where a purely mental being creates the physical, mental phenomena and physical phenomena are independent. The mental could exist independently of the physical. So any strike against that view is a strike against theism. All the evidence we have tells us that there is no change in the mental without a corresponding change in the physical. There does not appear to be the sort of radical independence of mind and matter that theism suggests. Evolution. Draper doesn't waste any time with creationists and takes it as a datum that human beings evolved by natural selection. Of course, this doesn't disprove theism. God could have elected to bring about human beings through evolution by natural processes. And this is a view called theistic evolution, supported most prominently by Francis Collins. God didn't use special creation or intelligent design, he opted to use evolution alone to bring about human beings. That's not a very popular view, but it's a coherent view. So why is the fact that humans evolved evidence that favors naturalism over theism? On naturalism, there really is no other way for humans to come about other than evolution by natural processes. But on theism, God has options. God could have used evolution to create life, but he also could have used many other methods, methods which are impossible on naturalism. He could have created all life in its present form, more or less, like Ken Ham believes. He could have intelligently designed nature, like Michael Behe thinks. God could have created some life by means of evolution, and some by means of special creation. He could have brought about everything by natural processes except human beings. Again, God has a lot of options, unlike nature. So the fact that humans and all life came about via evolution by purely natural processes is not surprising on naturalism, but is a bit surprising on theism. For theists, evolution may or may not be true. There are so many options. But there's really only one option on naturalism. And wouldn't you know it, that's the one we got. Even though I'm explaining Draper's style of argumentation over and over, I'm still going to get pushback. The fact that human beings evolved, along with the rest of nature, is a red bean. There are red beans in both jars. There just aren't very many in the theism jar. This line of evidence, along with all the others, doesn't prove theism false. Evolution is compatible with theism. It's just, A, certainly not the only possibility on theism. And be not what you would expect, hence the vast majority of believers supporting I.D. in special creation. There is an additional reason theism and evolution don't make the best fit. As we mentioned a moment ago, theism leads us to believe that minds are non-physical entities, since a mind is responsible for the existence of the physical world. As Jeff Lauder has argued, quote, Since theism entails if a physical world exists, it was created by a mind, theism leads us to expect that minds are fundamentally non-physical entities, and therefore that conscious life is fundamentally different from non-conscious life. But this in turn would lead us to expect that conscious life was created independently of non-conscious life, that evolution is false. So the scientific fact of biological evolution is more likely on the assumption that naturalism is true than on the assumption that theism is true. End quote. Draper's next red bean is pain and pleasure, specifically the roles they play in biology. Pain and pleasure are systematically correlated with evolutionary goals, in other words, survival and reproduction. Pain and pleasure are not systematically correlated with rewarding good and punishing evil, not with spiritual growth, not with moral or intellectual development, not with human fulfillment, survival and reproduction. Pain is correlated with that which is maladaptive, anything that threatens survival and reproduction, pleasure is correlated with that which is adaptive, anything that aids survival and reproduction, and I would argue that examples of pain and pleasure that don't fall strictly in those categories can be easily understood as a byproduct of pains and pleasures that do. This is true of all the suffering and pleasures of our world, not just the human world, but that of non-human animals as well. If naturalism is true, the apparent moral randomness of pain and pleasure is not surprising in the least. If theism is true, God wouldn't produce suffering or allow suffering without a morally justifying reason for doing so. He's a good God, after all. If there's suffering in his creation, he must have a reason. And it seems pretty unlikely that God's reasons would just so happen to always coincide with the predictions of evolutionary biology. On theism, pain and pleasure are moral phenomena that just happen to line up with the evolutionary goals of survival and reproduction. I think it's pretty obvious that pain and pleasure are correlated with adaptation. But to concede that point is to say that the distribution of pain and pleasure in our world is not organized according to moral principles. In other words, the distribution of pain and pleasure in our world is morally random. A morally random distribution of pain and pleasure is to be expected on naturalism, not so on theism. God would not create a morally random world. If he's good, he wouldn't create or allow suffering without some justifying moral reason. So, if you're a theist, you have to believe that God's moral reasoning regarding the distribution of pain and pleasure, coincidentally, lines up with the predictions of evolutionary biology. The next line of evidence is tragedy. There are genuine tragedies in our world, gratuitous evil, times when the good to come out of a terrible situation is negligible or non-existent. The existence and abundance of tragedies is far more likely on naturalism than on theism. On theism, you'd expect some good to overcome the weight of the tragedy. In other words, there shouldn't be genuine tragedies. One could argue that on theism, there are no tragedies. Tragedies are a myth. There are only apparent tragedies, since God will either make it right in the end, or he has a justifying reason for allowing this seemingly gratuitous evil. There must be some kind of higher moral purpose. On theism, there is no case of a calamity that was visited upon an innocent, and that's all. On naturalism, things really are how they appear. So, if you believe in tragedies, times when something terrible really wasn't justified, and wasn't outweighed by any notable good, that's evidence for naturalism over theism. And unless you're a universalist, heaven cannot save you here. There are people who live tragic lives and then go to hell. But you know the other response to this. How do you know there isn't a higher moral purpose to children with cancer, or to innocents who became terribly maimed in accidents, or to animals suffering and dying alone in the forest? How do you know? Draper anticipates this, quote, While there might be reasons we can't understand why it's a good thing to allow this to happen, there might also be reasons we can't understand why it's a bad thing to let it happen. End quote. There may be greater goods of which we are ignorant, which would mean all these tragedies are only apparent tragedies. But as Draper rightly says, this point cuts both ways. It's equally conceivable that more evil results from these tragedies than we know about. Maybe there are greater goods, of which we are ignorant, but it's equally plausible that there are greater evils, of which we are ignorant. It's conceivable that there are unknown goods, it's just as conceivable that there are unknown evils. They are equally strong points. So the appeal to unknown greater goods doesn't allow the theist to escape. Genuine tragedies are to be expected on naturalism, but not on theism. So the apparent existence of a tragic life or a tragic event is evidence favoring naturalism. The next line of evidence is divine silence during tragedies. Let's say you had a daughter who needed to go to the doctor to undergo some medical treatment. This treatment wasn't going to be pleasant, but there's a good reason for it. This is essentially what many theists believe about apparent tragedies. There is some greater moral purpose, some justifying reason, why God is allowing it to happen. We may not know what it is, but rest assured there's a reason. If God is good, there has to be. But a good father would be there for his daughter in the medical scenario. He would try to explain that there's a purpose, and regardless, he would try to be a comforting presence. However, many victims of tragedies don't feel God's comforting presence. Some do, some don't. This fact is much more likely on naturalism than theism. In response to the existence of tragedies, theists will often invoke an unknown moral purpose, or unknown moral reasons. That doesn't bear on this point. God should still be comforting us. Isn't that what a good father would do? Again, many feel his comforting presence in the midst of tragedies, but many do not. This fact is more expected on naturalism. One final word on this unknown reasons strategy that many theists adopt when faced with gratuitous suffering. Thomas Nagel once wrote of the problem of evil, quote, Even if the theist supposes that the problem has a solution that we humans are unable to grasp, that would mean that God, who created us with the capacity to discover the laws of nature and find the world scientifically intelligible, has made us incapable of finding the world morally intelligible. These are powerful reasons for doubt, and they have certainly destroyed the faith of some believers. End quote To those theists who invoke some version of the Unknown reason’s defense, at least we can agree that the world seems morally unintelligible. Draper's closing line of evidence, religious confusion.
1: My seventh red is the fact that God does not clearly reveal, at least to many theists, which religious path he wants them to follow. Some theists believe that Jesus is God's son. Some theists believe that Jesus was a prophet, but not the greatest prophet. Some theists believe that God didn't reveal anything through Jesus. Surely, if there is a God, it must make a difference which of these beliefs about Jesus is true. Yet the evidence fails to make it clear to many, many theists which of these claims about Jesus is true. One can find reasonable theists that have all three of those positions about Jesus that I mentioned. More generally, the fact that God has not clearly revealed His purposes and commands to a great many theists, well, that's absolutely certain on the assumption that naturalism is true, because if naturalism is true, there is no God, so there is no clear revelation. But it's somewhat surprising on theism. Again, there might be good reasons we don't know about, but it's somewhat surprising on theism. Thus, the seventh red bean has been drawn. Together, the seven red beans provide a very strong cumulative case against theism.
0: God does not clearly reveal the religious paths he wants us to take. This is totally unsurprising on naturalism, but surprising on theism. And all the more surprising if an eternity in hell hangs in the balance. I think this argument from religious confusion is powerful, especially given some widely subscribed views of the afterlife. Disagreements among theists can range from trivial to key issues that define who God is, what he wants from us, and who goes to heaven and who doesn't. The World Christian Encyclopedia states that, quote, World Christianity consists of six major blocks, divided into 300 major ecclesiastical traditions, composed of over 33,000 distinct denominations, in 238 countries. End quote. And that's just within one religion, considering the whole of theism only makes matters worse. All this confusion surrounding theism is surprising, even bewildering if theism is true. How is it possible that God couldn't have been so clear as to avoid misinterpretation of his revelation? In his omniscience, wouldn't he have foreseen all the strife that would result from his lack of clarity? And wouldn't he know how to evade it? Any Christian who asserts that those who believe the wrong things are destined for hell has some explaining to do. Of course, this confusion is not surprising in the least on naturalism. An indifferent universe is where one would expect to find meaningless struggles and conflicts between utterly confused groups of apes. If theism is true, God wants to have a relationship of some kind with human beings. It doesn't make any sense that an omnipotent being is trying and failing to connect with humans who are approaching the matter in good faith. There are sincere Muslims, Christians, Jews, and pagans who want a relationship with God. They want to do His will. So both parties involved, one of them endowed with omniscience and omnipotence, want to be in a relationship. And yet, even if theism is true, we know that most of them are not. Theists have disagreements about God's revelation. And these disagreements have failed to produce much tangible progress, but have managed to produce violent conflict in tens of thousands of irreconcilable camps. God's revelation has not been understood, even by those who are earnestly trying to understand it. This is to be expected on naturalism, but religious confusion is quite surprising on theism, especially considering the consequential nature of these issues. The problem isn't just with non-believers. If Islam is true, My Christian friends are doomed. If Christianity is true, Hindus are probably going to hell. The world's religions are not reconcilable. They can't all be true. So God and human beings, both parties involved, desperately want to be in relationship, and yet that's not happening for some reason. We know that most of them aren't, even if theism is true. Am I really supposed to believe that an omniscient and omnipotent God is trying but failing to communicate his revelation. As you're probably tired of hearing me say by now, Draper doesn't think certainty is on the table. And he's right. Believers and non believers can both explain the evidence, however unconvincing those explanations may be. Seven red beans do not prove that we've been taking from the jar that has mostly red beans and not from the jar that has mostly blue beans. There's a chance we've been taking from the latter jar, but it's obviously not very likely. Naturalism is a better explanation of the meager moral fruits of theism, mind brain dependence, evolution, the biological roles of pain and pleasure, tragedies divine silence during tragedies, and religious confusion. These are not what we would expect to find if theism were true. The world looks about as one would expect it to look if God did not exist. As Delas McCown once said, the invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. That's all I have for you today. I have new patrons to thank. Sebastian Frenzer, Robert Trout, Abigail England, JY, and Jack. Thank you, Sebastian Frenzer, Robert Trout, Abigail England, JY, and Jack. I very much appreciate it. And I have a new Hall of Fame inductee. Roth Montiano. So let me thank my new patron Hall of Famers. If you still have an income, make sure your podcasters do too. Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Pre-Nifty, Rory B. Murkowski, and, Roth Montiano. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter, where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still believe in the Invisible Dragon in my Garage, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a 5-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Wailers, the song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Other music for this episode was written and performed by Achika Nito and was also used with permission. Thank you for joining me today, I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.